Well, if you're like us and you've been following the horrors that have been unfolding in Israel and the residual abortion of media coverage, it's very difficult to make heads or tails of any of the situation, but it's important enough where you ought to pay some attention to it. So the Ruthless Variety program has taken upon itself to do a special episode today, releasing this one early, and it's just on this issue. It's with the guy who we think probably knows more about this topic than anybody else on the face of the planet, Brian Hook. I hope you enjoy the interview. Well, with all of the world events and our consistent uh, trials and tribulations of how to accurately characterize these things in a very dynamic situation, we thought what we would do is bring in, I think, the guy who knows more about this stuff than anybody else. Uh, certainly more than us. Certainly more than us. His name is Brian Hook. Uh, he was President Trump's envoy to Iran. You've got a, a literally a resume that reads like, well, you just need to talk to this guy about all of that. Yeah. Because you serve three presidents, variety of foreign international roles. Thank you for spending some time with us. No, it's great. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. And you're now in the private sector, which I suppose is... Happily. (laughs) Especially now. Especially now. It's good to be in the private sector. I got to imagine. Well, I mean, look, when you weren't in the private sector, uh, I couldn't help but notice we didn't have a lot of these things going on. Yeah. Um, And let's just start there. Where do you think we sit with the crisis here in Israel, Um, you know, two weeks plus removed, Um, how did we get here and, you know, just some observations basically about your time and how we could have done things differently. You know, one of the hardest parts about being out of office is we've gone from peace to war in the Middle East in just like a little over two years. Mm -hmm. We came into office and we had a terrorist caliphate in the heart of the Middle East, terrorist army the size of Ohio, and President Trump uh, defeated ISIS. we then went about the business of trying to promote peace, not only in the Arab-Israeli side, but also in the Israeli-Palestinian side. Mm-hmm. We released a plan um, to improve the lives of the Palestinian people. We released a political vision to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And then after that, we negotiated four peace agreements with Israel in five months. Yeah, amazing. And the Biden administration inherited a really really stable Middle East. and Which they were happy to talk about up until three weeks ago, by the way. They were talking about all the yeah. success that they've encountered in the Middle East. And yeah. It turns out that changes in a hurry. Well, over those two years, they made the mistake of going back to the Obama playbook mm-hmm. of essentially standing with Iran. Um, what, try- is, what is that? I, I, like, how I do don't they- understand it. I mean, I think I think their theory of the case is that Iran is going to get a nuclear weapon. And they're fairly fatalistic about that. So what you have to do is contain them like we do North Korea. Mm -hmm. And our approach is Iran will never get a nuclear weapon. I don't think they say that publicly, that they believe Iran is, because they always say Iran will never get a nuclear weapon. But I think privately they believe that it's inevitable Mm -hmm. and that what would be required to stop them would be much worse than them getting a nuclear weapon. Mm. Mm-hmm. taking out all the nuclear facilities. Which is, there's basically one way to do that, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. You're not going to do it through, you know, small covert operations. I mean, Pallets it's going to... of cash only gets you so far. Pallets <laughs> of cash are not going to, you know, solve it. But there has been this, 
this sort of approach to Iran. They put a lot of daylight between the U.S. and Israel in the first couple of years. They iced Netanyahu. They immediately picked up on trying to get Iran back into the Iran deal. They didn't enforce the oil sanctions. Yeah. They didn't really add any new meaningful sanctions. And as a consequence, I think Iran and its partners, the Houthis in Yemen, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and then Hamas in Gaza, uh, the balance of power is now tilted in their favor. Mm. And when we were in office, it was the reverse. And now that the balance of power is tilted in favor of this axis of resistance, um, it's now a very dangerous, dangerous moment. Hmm. And the, the Middle East has never been more complicated. I think this all was avoidable. Hmm. Um, I, thought that, I think this moment is entirely avoidable. We didn't have a single major attack by Hamas or Hezbollah right. during the four years we were in office because we understand deterrence. And this administration has lost deterrence. It's very easy to lose it. And it takes a lot of work to recover it. Do you think that that started in some part by the way they handled the exit out of Afghanistan? And it just sort of reverberated out through how they handled the entire Middle East and what that communicated to the world abroad? Yeah, there is a narrative in the Middle East, I would say post-Iraq war, that America is pulling out of the region. Mm. And even though Afghanistan is not in technically in the Middle East, right. it's close enough and so it was part of this narrative that America wants out of the Middle East. And the way that we left Afghanistan was so calamitous. Um, that is a teaching moment in Tehran, in Damascus, in Baghdad, in Gaza, all of these places. And it ends up incentivizing risk-taking on the part of our adversaries mm. because they believe that America doesn't have the stomach and that we want out. Mm -hmm. And America has been engaged in the Middle East since the time of George Washington. Right. You know, if you read the history of American engagement in the Middle East, I think Power, Faith, and Fantasy by Michael Oren is a great book on this subject. But from the time that we had to deal with the Barbary pirates taking American hostages, you know, Ben Franklin proposed what became the U.S. Navy, the Mediterranean Squadron. Mm -hmm to get American hostages you know, out of North Africa with the Barbary pirates. We have been engaging in that region of the world, in the Middle East and North Africa, for the entirety of um, the American Republic. It's not going to stop. There isn't, I mean, you can leave the Middle East, but it will follow you. Mm -hmm. And there always has been this sort of, well, I'd love to get out of the Middle East. There's a lot of fatigue. There's oh, a ton yeah. of American fatigue with the Middle East. You had overextension during Bush. I think you had a retrenchment under Obama. I thought Trump struck the right balance. We didn't have any new wars. We, um, we really helped stabilize the Middle East by being no better friend and no worse enemy. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very good, I mean, I don't like foreign policy on a bumper sticker. Yeah. But in the Middle East, it's a pretty good formula. Well, it seems like they have to listen, right? I mean, that's yeah, and you, you guys, you guys squeeze them in very practical ways, right? I mean, I think I remember you telling me that there, that that Hezbollah had a cash flow problem yeah. when uh, when Trump was president. You guys were in charge, right? Did, weren't they trying to raise money or something? What was? This? Yeah, uh, the sanctions we put in place on Iran, according to then President Rouhani, the Iranian president, cost the regime two hundred billion dollars. <laughs> 
And so for those who say you know, the maximum pressure campaign didn't work, don't take my word for it. Uh, the president of Iran said that it cost the regime $200 billion. You, you don't have to strain your imagination to imagine how they would spend $200 billion. Yeah. They would spend it on Hamas and Hezbollah and PIJ, the very organizations that are now committed to destroying Israel. So our approach was knowing that Iran provides Hezbollah with 70% of its operating budget over its lifetime. Um, they provide enormous amounts of money to Hamas. They organize, train, and equip Hamas. So if you want to get serious about this problem of Israel being encircled and our friends, um, our, our Sunni partners um, coming under Iranian hegemony, you have to go after the money. Mm. Iran is the banker for all of the terrorism in the Middle East that our adversaries prosecute. How do you go after the money? You, you can't go after it unless you go after the oil. Yeah, right. And this is what everybody sort of blows past, right? Yeah. Everybody talks about, uh, you know, the, the hostage negotiation cash or the Iran deal with the pallets of cash or whatever. It, there hasn't been a lot of discussion about the oil sanctions yeah. and the different approach that this administration has taken to that. And what that's done basically now with the Ukrainian-Russian war that has made Europe basically, you know, stop the yeah. sort of ex energy... Uh, uh, partnership that they've had with Russia mm -hmm. only provides more opportunity, I would imagine, for the Iranians. It does. It does. Uh, Iran represents about 3% of the world's oil supply. And that revenue from oil is what they use to funnel these various proxy groups. <laughs> um, if you're in the Iran nuclear deal, you can't sanction oil. So <laughs> I, I just think for a host of reasons, the Iran nuclear deal was a bad deal and President Trump was right to get out of it. Mm. And once we got out of it, it gave us enormous freedom to go after the money flows that are going to Hamas. Mm. And so let's see, I think they were around 2.5, 2.7 million barrels of oil a day. That was their, that's their Iranian max right around there. And we got them at their lowest point to below 100,000 barrels. Really? Wow. Holy smokes, that's a massive difference. So that works out to about 35 billion, it depends on the price of oil, but it's $35 billion <laughs> in lost revenue. This administration came in and they relaxed the oil sanctions. And as a consequence now, you know, Iran is well north of a million barrels, 1.5, I don't know what the number is. And given the Biden administration's anxiety about high oil prices aborting the soft landing that the Fed is trying to mm -hmm. engineer. Now that oil is in the low 90s, if you have a contagion in the Middle East that spreads beyond Gaza, you could very well see 120, 150 oil. Wow. And that will send us into a global recession. Yeah. So the stakes regionally are very high for Israel and for the American security guarantee. Um, that is, you know, the, the sort of the, uh, the gold standard for guarantees in the world. <laughs> so we have very high regional stakes, but if there is a contagion here and there's a series of dominoes that fall, you could uh, see a global recession with oil spiking the way that it could. So uh, beyond, uh, you know, obviously uh, they want to destroy Israel. What do you see as Iran's ambition 
in the Middle East writ large. Because, you know, like you said, they fund these proxy wars in Yemen and mm -hmm. they fund Hezbollah and whatnot. What is their ambition? Is it, is it to counterbalance uh, Saudi Arabia? What is their end goal with that? I've read the writings of the Ayatollah Khomeini, mm. and he envisioned at the time of the Iranian revolution a global revolution of um, Shia hegemony. And that revolution makes the Iranian regime the last revolutionary regime on earth. <laughs> you can't say that about North Korea. It's a hermit kingdom. Right. Mm -hmm. You can't say that about, I mean, the, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, that was a very revolutionary ideological. But as you look around the world, Iran is the last revolutionary regime. <laughs> and it's in their charter. Um, when you talk with various Arab governments, with Sunni Arab governments, they will all point to the, the charter documents of the Iranian regime is global dominance. It's not just regional. They start regionally, mm -hmm. but it's to expand globally. A large part of this revolution is destroying Israel. Yeah. And not just like, like we fought the Nazis, we took the Nazis out of power, but Germany remained. Right. They don't want Israel to remain, and they don't want any of the Jewish people to remain. They want Israel gone as a country, and they want all of the Jews dead. That's just incredible. Mm. Yeah, they do. I mean, they say as much. They say as much. And so that's when they say death to Israel, death to the United States. It's a very, very ambitious and aggressive uh, ideology. It is not shared by the Iranian people. Mm. Uh, Two-thirds of the Iranian people were born after the revolution. Um, they do not believe that this regime represents them. The regime recently has been trying to stoke uh, protests in Iran against uh, uh, against Israel, and the and Iranian people time doing that. did the opposite. Huh. Yeah, because they are tired of the Iranian regime uh, investing in proxies and not their own people. Interesting. So all of this money, all of these money flows that keep going to these proxies around the world, you know, you compare that with countries like Saudi and UAE and Bahrain and Qatar, they invest their natural resources in their own people. Iran, it takes all that money and pushes it out to their proxies in the quest of global domination. Hmm. How do they, how do they, you know, if the charter is global domination, it, the, Iran is not like, like you said, it's not like North Korea in that, you know, people have access to information. They know that there is an outside world beyond the one that yeah. they're living in. I mean, you wouldn't have to be a, rocket scientists to sort of like glance around the world and be like global domination doesn't seem yeah. totally likely right now under what we've right. got going on but but yet that's the primary focus of the regime in power well the iranian people don't have the guns yeah. and the and the, the regime does and any time in iran when a lekwalesa figure emerges the regime kills him mm -hmm. that's their modus operandi and it's been very successful um, they, they, they will, you know, when I was in office, there were protests in 200 cities. They just mow them down. Ugh. And it's a, they, they, they look at their own people in a similar way that Hamas does. Um, the press has been talking about Hamas using its people as human shields. It's actually not entirely accurate. It's, it's a human sacrifice. Um, one of the Hamas leaders had said, we know that the Israelis love life. We love martyrdom. Mm. And part of that martyrdom is using the population. So when Hamas goes in and stages that attack, 
they know that there is going to be a retaliation. And part of the Hamas goal here is to make Israel, in its response, in the number of casualties that are going to follow after the invasion, to make Israel an international pariah. Yeah. They and can clear. I mean, they're pretty good at it. They're very good at it. Yeah. And so it, it, if, if you think about it, Doug Fife recently wrote a thoughtful piece on this. Possibly nowhere in the history of war has a country used its own people to maximize casualties. Hmm. But you still have five, 600,000 people in the north. Hamas has been shooting people that have been trying to smuggle them out to the south. They have been blocking roads to get people out because Hamas wants Israel to come in and they want to see a massive death toll, which would then drive Saudi away from Israel and make it very hard for Saudi to have the political space to normalize with Israel. It's a, it is a diabolical um, viewpoint um, in the way that governments like Iran and Hamas sacrifice their own people on this altar of deep ideology. Well, let's talk about the Saudis for a second, because a lot of speculation coming into this that the timing was not coincidental and that right. there was progress being made in a Saudi charter of sorts. Um, does that come into play here? Is that something that Iran is focused on? Are they trying to basically use this as a leverage point to get Saudi and, and the rest of the world away from Israel? Yeah, it was a very smart tactical move. The timing, even though this, this is an attack that I think has been plotted for some time, um, the Abraham Accords set into motion um, a strategic realignment. And the peak of that would be Saudi. Um, if you th the, think of Saudi as the Vatican of Sunni Islam, mm -hmm. and you have Mecca and Medina in Saudi, there are 55 Arab Muslim nations, right, that largely look to Saudi. And if Saudi normalizes with Israel, um, it changes the region in a very mm. fundamental way. But there's also some other benefits that come with Saudi under the agreement that the Biden administration, I think, was smartly negotiating with Saudi. Saudi would get a defense treaty with the United States um, to uh, defend also, Saudi. Also not helpful for Iran. Very bad. <laughs> and that same package would include a defense treaty with Israel. Mm. And so it's, in a, it's a kind of an Article 5 light it would be a defense treaty against existential threats. There's also some other benefits that Israel and uh, Saudi Arabia would get in that package. But for Iran and for Hezbollah and Hamas to have the United States make a treaty alliance with Saudi Arabia and Israel is a game changer. Mm -hmm. and, and they can't have it. They can't. You, they cannot allow it. Hmm. And so now, what they've very, uh, in in a coldly calculating way, but have been very successful. They are going to. They've already stoked Arab uprisings yeah. in the region. Yeah. So that is one motive. The second motive is to make Israel's response an unsuitable partner for Saudi. Hmm. What is it about the Western media that helps? that seems preconditioned to help them along the way when we've known this. I mean, this is not something that just arose in the last three weeks. This has been going on for generations. Yeah. And they are very good at the PR side of this. 
in trying to demonize Israel and, and basically try to make everybody else sort of this innocent victim. Um, where did that come from? How, how did we get in the Western media a, a viewpoint where you're getting Hamas press releases drafted in Tehran and going yeah. front page with them here in the New York Times? I don't know. The New York Times has emerged as like the court stenographer for Hamas. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's shocking, right? It's yeah, they're lost. Yeah. I mean, so much of sort of mainstream American media journalism is dead. Yeah. And I, I don't I don't read those outlets. How difficult is that, though, when you're doing important work overseas? And you've you got to imagine if there's one place in the world that you can translate this important work. Yeah. It's your home country that you're doing the work on behalf. And then you see stuff like this. It's very hard. Um, and unfortunately, you've got our major media outlets acting as propaganda yeah. outlets for for these countries. I mean, it includes Iran, um, sadly. <laughs> it's very hard. It's very hard because I think it misleads so many people <laughs> because you still have enough people that the New York Times and the Post and other, these other outlets shape people's thinking. But it's in a way that is not journalism. Mm. They are not presenting both sides. Right. And this is what I mean by you know journalism largely being dead. I come from a family you know with a background in newspaper publishing. It's very hard to see the collapse of journalism that yeah. just faithfully reports both sides. Like it's not that hard. Mm. <laughs> it shouldn't be. But even when you have decent reporters that try to cover it, their editors then completely shape the story in a way that really doesn't do justice to the subject. I mean, you really have to have faith and trust with negotiation partners when you're dealing with things like the Abraham Accords because you're not getting any sort of favorable push out of the home media. Yeah, we didn't. And so one of the, you know, Jared led the team, you know, on the Abraham Accords. I was honored to be a part of it. We didn't have a single leak. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think that's a better approach. The Biden administration has decided to conduct its negotiations with Saudi and Israel in public. I don't think that's a, it'd be a, a much better strategy to do it quietly. Yeah, well, it turns out people are listening. Yeah, right, people are listening, and then that sort of mobilizes, right? Yeah. Um, no one knew. There were, you know, the, the Jared's peace team had about five people on it. <laughs> and we were able to do, you know, as I said, four peace agreements. We didn't have a single leak. I mean, the press, I remember we're sitting in the Oval. We did the phone call with Netanyahu and with uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed in UAE. And then Trump calls in the media and they're sitting there in front of the desk. And he says, UAE and Israel have just normalized. <laughs> I mean, it truly was like incredible. You should have seen the. I was standing behind his desk and you're looking at the reporters and they're, they're not even moving. <laughs> they were just completely stunned by it. But that's how you do diplomacy. I mean, yeah. some of this stuff. Now it is a little bit what I probably would have done with Saudi and UAE with Saudi and Israel and the United States. I think you do that very quietly. Then you announce the package and then it has to go to the Senate uh, for 67 votes mm -hmm. and you have to get that through. But I would I think it's much better to conduct these sorts of negotiations quietly, which we did and we were enormously successful. Well, the Abraham Accords it wasn't the only successful operation that you were deeply involved in during the time in Trump's administration. There was also a key strike against an enemy, Soleimani, who we talk about often on this show, that you were also deeply involved in. What can you tell us, what kind of a story can you tell us about what went into taking out Soleimani? On the show, we say we 
turn Soleimani into salsa. <laughs> but what what can what can you talk about and the steps that led up to that and when the strike happened and and uh, everything that went in? We had come into office with a very strong counter Iran strategy. We were limited in that strategy by being in the Iran nuclear deal, and that took some time to get out. But when we started to um, really focus on Iran and to try to create deterrence, as I said, if you can weaken Iran, you are going to weaken Hamas and Hezbollah. Um, Qasem Soleimani is responsible for the deaths of over 600 Americans yeah. in Iraq. Yeah. Um, enormously capable uh, commander and orchestrated all of the Iranian proxies um, around the world. And so knowing that this is somebody who has been so effective uh, in these theaters and the, number, and the blood on his hands from killing so many Americans in Iraq, you, you have to take that sort of threat seriously when you see it on the move. And so our intelligence community was, um, the intelligence was very clear on this. And so when the intelligence community brought forth evidence that he was plotting a lar large attacks that would potentially kill hundreds of Americans. The risks of removing him from the battlefield were much smaller than leaving him mm -hmm. in place. And so when somebody that capable is moving around the Middle East and plotting large-scale mass casualty attacks against not only our um, Americans uh, soldiers, but also diplomats. Hmm. We had had in Baghdad, if you may remember, there was an attack on our embassy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there was a 28-year-old uh, American contractor, a linguist, who was killed. Um, that was orchestrated by Soleimani. And so we had already had evidence that he was, I mean, they wanted a Benghazi-style moment in Baghdad. Mm. Uh, President Trump, to his credit, prevented it. Mm. But that did not stop Soleimani. I think his theory was that America needed one last push to get out of the region completely, just given the fatigue that we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. And that once America is out, Iran has a free hand to essentially encircle the region. And so that was what the intelligence community presented. And then President Trump uh, issued the order to take the strike. Yeah, what's so amazing about that is a few years removed now, Everybody likes to sort of uh, project their own foreign policy views upon President Trump. And I imagine this is pretty amazing in your shoes to listen to because you hear everything from, well, he's just basically an isolationist. Right. Uh, he doesn't, you know, sort of like view the outside world with texture and whatnot, which is hilarious to me, to, you know, well, he's the madman theory where mm -hmm. you just don't, you know, do anything because you just don't know what this guy's capable of. But in listening to you and watching with some granularity of what this previous administration did on the foreign policy front, like you said, I mean, it may sound like a bumper sticker, but no greater friend, no greater enemy is exactly the way that he operated. And they largely dictated whether you want to be a friend or not. And if you weren't, you there was action associated with that. Especially in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, we were taking a different approach to Asia and China and counterbalancing China, which was long overdue. But in the Middle East, you really do need to be no better friend and no worse enemy. Mm -hmm. And 
President Trump had an instinctive understanding of this. Uh, so much of the work in the Middle East is, you know, you listen to the debates on TV and stuff. It's written by people. It's talked. People have written a lot of books and they're experts on the subject. But I'd take Trump's judgment over a lot of people's expertise <laughs> every day of the week in the Middle East. He had an instinctive understanding uh, of the region. You know, did he read? Did he author ten books on the subject? No. <laughs> But when I read the books of these other people who've written, you know, all, all these books, what's their record? Right. Right. At the end of the day, it's results. And it is incontrovertibly true that when Trump came to office, the Middle East was a mess. Mm. And he left it better than how he found it. Mm -hmm. That is simply the case. Yeah. And he deserves a lot of credit for it. Doesn't get much credit for it. Um, I was disappointed when this administration came into office. First thing they did was delisted the Houthis mm. as a foreign terrorist organization. Secretary Pompeo and I spent the better part of a year uh, getting them listed. It mm. was one of the last things we were able to get done. That same terrorist organization today has Iranian missiles that can strike Israel. And the Jeez. first thing that the Biden administration did, Secretary Blinken coming into office, was delisting the Houthis. I think that's a policy mistake. Right. I don't like to, I don't personalize policy differences, but I think that was a policy mistake to delist the Houthis that are certainly a foreign, they meet every definition of a foreign terrorist organization. And then early on, uh, they wouldn't even, they would not talk about the Abraham Accords. Um, but right. I mean, that's... I don't, I don't, and then at some point, they started to come around on it. But they, it, it should have happened faster. And I do think that if we had shown more support for Israel instead of putting daylight between us, right. less attention to Iran, stay with the oil sanctions, stay with our Sunni partners, um, I, and, and, you've really, and you do what you can to dry up Iran's revenue, you're going to have better outcomes in the Middle East. Mm. So what, now that we're in this mess, I mean, there's not a lot of good options, obviously. Uh, in your view, what are sort of the steps that we could take to help sort of get this back into, I mean, we're not going to get it back to where you had it, yeah. but but how do we avoid a region-wide calamity here, as you were talking about before? This is as complicated a moment as I've, as I've ever seen for Israel and for the United States now. All the options are bad mm. and very complicated. And as you work through an option set, the second third and fourth order consequences are enormous. I think broadly, I think, you know, Israel is going to do what it needs to do to defend itself yeah. against future um, attacks like the one that happened on October 7th. What that looks like, we don't know yet. I think the region and the world is holding its breath on what that looks like. But when Israel says never again, yeah, they mean it. They mean it. Mm -hmm. The last time they said never again, they created a country. <laughs> right. And when you look at the scale of this, you know, if if this same attack had happened in the United States, there'd be 40,000 dead. And that is not going to go unanswered. As Israel goes into Gaza to create a security architecture that they can live with, that very well could trigger a third Lebanon war. Mm-hmm. And this you, is where Hezbollah comes in. This is where Hezbollah comes in. And Hezbollah is obviously a much more capable and more effective adversary than Hamas. 
you have anywhere between 30 to 35,000 Hamas fighters, and then you add the Palestine Islamic Jihad and other groups, you could get up to 50. When you go to the north, to Israel's northern border, given the number of Iranian proxies that have flowed into southern Syria and into southern Lebanon, um, if you take the Hezbollah forces with the forces that are, could be coming in, the low end is 50,000, the upper end is 100. <laughs> the um, Hezbollah has 150,000 rockets and missiles, and they have about 2,000 drones. I think, you know, Hezbollah since 2012 has been thinking about a big operation that would go into Galilee and retake land. That operation is something which, if Israel gets bogged down in Gaza, yeah. in urban warfare that goes months, that could be the gamble that, you know, that, that Lebanon decides to pursue to go in. Mm. And then Israel is fighting a multi-front war. Uh, the West Bank could go up. You could have deep instability in Gaza, I mean, in um, Egypt and uh, Jordan. So Gaza is going to be the first domino. The other dominoes that fall could be significant. I think the role, to get to your question, the role the United States can play is to deter Iran, its proxies, and Hezbollah from coming into this stay out of the game. Yeah. Which it, is why we probably have a you know carrier group in the Mediterranean right now. That's why it's there. Yeah. But you know we've had a lot of attacks over the last three, four, five days against uh, Iranian proxies have attacked U.S. targets in yeah. Iraq and Syria. Yeah, but then shooting shooting rockets down left and right too. Yeah. If we don't respond to that, it, that sort of lack of response will invite more Iranian aggression. Right. And the Iranians always probe with bayonets. Mm -hmm. They're very Marxist in that way. You know, you probe with bayonets, and if you hit mush, you keep going, and if you hit steel, you pull back. So they are testing their limits, and we have to start pushing that back. There are ways to do that. Um, there has to be the political will to do that. I think that's how you deter a broader war that we would get dragged into. Um, I, you, it sounds like, I mean, that's the only way. Because it's the it, only way. It, it, the United States can't, we, we can't have Israel just falling under two-sided war and, and it's elimination. I mean, that's obviously would, not an option. Can you imagine the, the, the effects that would have around the world no. for America's no. security guarantee? Not, not even, can't even fathom it. I mean, if Israel were to get bogged down in Gaza and then you had a, a multi-front war, we have to ensure that Israel... Uh, recovers its strength. And um, right now, they, they're the victim. At some point, they're going to be the victor. There is going to be an inverse sort of relation uh, from victor to from victim to victor. The, the global support is going to go down. And America needs to hang with Israel yeah. during this period of, um, of, of enormous consequence for them. Right now, um, the wind is at the back of the axis of resistance, and Israel is going to need to reverse the balance of power. That, I think, base case is three months. It's probably going to be closer to six. It took us, what, nine months to take Mosul? These sort of urban warfare things are painful. No kidding. And it's going to take a very long time. We need to give Israel the space and the time that it needs to ensure that this never happens again. Um, while at the same time, I mean, look, I thought we put out a very good blueprint and a vision uh, to help the Palestinian people 
Um, that blueprint that we spent years working on and released in Bahrain is still a very good blueprint Yeah, uh, for the Palestinian people. The other complicating piece of this, among many others, is the day after. Um, if Israel does clear out Hamas, what, does, what do they hand it over to? Because Israel does not want to occupy Gaza again. Yeah, right. Egypt doesn't want to occupy Gaza again. So do you turn it over to what? An international trusteeship to, you're not going to turn it over to Hamas. <laughs> right. Do you turn it over to the Palestinian Authority? Who's there when you're done? And what does it look like when it's done? And I think Israel right now is thinking through that. That's super because, complicated. Like, we didn't think through like the day after on, on Iraq. Right. And Israel has to think through that. They need to prepare the theater for a multi-front war. Mm. They are not going to go into Gaza unless they're in a position to uh, fight multiple wars simultaneously. Oof, man. Well, you said it. That's as complicated a situation as I think we've seen. Um, amazing, amazing stuff. Thank you for explaining. I think, you know, if nothing else, it gives a really good idea what we've heard here over the last 25 minutes of why it is you ought to care about this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, if you can somehow get over to 30 plus Americans being killed, which I cannot. Yeah. Um, the idea of American security in a world where Israel goes down to a multi-front war is non-existent. I'm very concerned. I thought President Biden's speech was solid and it was very well received in Israel. And it is rhetorically exactly right. He did not mention Iran in yeah, the speech. That was notable. Um, ultimately, you're going you're gonna to have to get upstream on this. Hamas would not have been able to do what it did without Iran. Yeah, it, it, let me just quickly ask you about that because they went to great lengths to say that they couldn't directly connect Iran to the operation, which again, like anybody who's been following this for 10 minutes knows that they funded the entire operation uh, and they funded millions more operations and that link is so direct as a straight line to Tehran. Why go through putting yourself into a pretzel to try to explain that we don't know exactly where they are on this? I think if the intelligence community were to come out and say that, it would create a condition where the administration has to do something to deal with it. And they would rather not deal with Iran in the way that I think it is required. Yeah, yeah. And so as a consequence, um, the intelligence community, I think somebody there, whoever leaked it to the Post, gave an assist to compliment, I think, the desire not to get too involved in Iran and to... Um, but. It's, it's not, you're not going to get to the root cause of this. And I think the administration should be tightening oil sanctions. The problem for the administration is that that will increase the price of oil, which is already too high in an election year. And they've year. got a domestic. <laughs> and they have a domestic problem, and then you're going to plunge the country into a recession. So it's complicated, not only for Israel, but it's also complicated for the Biden administration. Oof, oof, wow. Yeah. Well, we get three questions we ask everybody. I feel kind of like, uh, you know, a little strange transitioning to something lighthearted after what we've just heard. Really? He brought us so much good news. Easy transition on your variety show. <laughs> we like variety, but it doesn't this feel appropriate variety. right now. Here's the variety part. Yeah, here's the variety, Brian. You grew up in Iowa. Uh, yeah. If you can plan your last meal on earth hopefully that's not coming anytime yeah, soon yeah. uh what would it be 
Being from Iowa, uh, probably a taco pizza from Happy Joe's. Oh, there you go. <laughs> taco pizza. I don't know. Is there a Happy Joe's in Minnesota? I don't think we have Happy Didn't Joe's. have that up there? No. Yeah. No, Good he... place. Anybody who's covered the Iowa caucuses knows Happy Joe's. So <laughs> Absolutely. Probably a taco pizza from Happy Joe's and then my mom's chocolate chip cookies. Probably the... There you Wash go. it down, really healthy meal. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> Gotta go in sideways. Uh, all right, so second question. With the benefit of retrospect, you've spent your entire career in public service and representing this country abroad. Um, if you could go back with Blue Sky and you could do absolutely anything in the world, and this no limits to this, uh, what would it be? Uh, is that what I was planning to do or what well, I... Well, it could be. Could be anything. Could be anything. Yeah. Yeah. I was planning on... I thought about being a university president. That was my plan. I was going to get a PhD. Lord knows it'd be nice to have one like this around. Right. Right? <laughs> you got Ben Sass and Ben, ben is doing a great job. <laughs> yeah. ben, Ben's the model. Yeah. Terrific job. Um, what And a great statement on Israel. Oh, terrific. Unlike all of the Ivies. Yep. Which were just... Yeah, I mean, it, oh, stunning. And stunning. multiple. They had to do three, three or four of them. Oh, I mean, the number of somersaults <laughs> they've done. It's like the first statement, all the donors leave. Yeah. And then the second statement is like marginally better. More donors leave. And by the third statement, it's it's pretty embarrassing. It's not a good look. But um, yeah, I probably would have done that. Um, if I had better abilities, I'd be a professional golfer. But that's there not, you go. That's not that's not in the cards. Well, that's all right. Tech Cruz said he'd be a power forward in the NBA, so I'm pretty oh, sure I'm pretty sure <laughs> you're a better golfer than he is a power forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. All right. So our last question. This gets a little bit complicated, but our view is almost every successful person is motivated by one of two things: the thrill of victory, or the agony of defeat. And it's not that anybody doesn't like to win or that they don't hate to lose. Yeah. It's what motivates them, right? Think of like the base character as Michael Jordan is the agony of defeat guy. Yeah. Every win he ever had, he celebrated for like five minutes. But like, you know, you so much as say something to him in a handshake line and he's going to remember it for the rest of his life. Yeah. You know, Tiger is the same way. Tiger's the same way. Right? You don't celebrate. Don't just celebrate. Just go on to the next victory. Right. And like Phil would be the other side of that yeah. coin. He's in the thrill of victory. guys. like, I think I can do that. You know, all those shots that he had on 18 to blow a major, it was, it was like, you know, why would you do that? He's like, Wing well, foot. I thought I could. Right. <laughs> I thought I could. Driver on 18. Exactly. Yeah. Wing foot. That's 100% what I'm talking about. Hand me the driver. The, caddy, <laughs> the caddy's handing him a five iron. Yeah, right. And Phil is like, driver. He's like, I've hit the shot and I'm going to hit the shot. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, if those are the two poles. Brian Hook, where do you find yourself? It's, uh, I probably chose the wrong profession for it, but it's the thrill of victory. Mm -hmm. uh, there aren't a lot of wins in foreign policy. I remember telling this to Jared. We, were, we took the first flight from UAE, from Abu Dhabi, sorry, from Israel to UAE. First commercial flight. Yeah, I remember this. I remember the photos. And we flew over Saudi Arabia. We're on an El Al Israeli plane flying over Saudi Arabia. Quite a statement. Which, the, yeah. you know, the Saudis had approved. Yeah. And then we're flying, we're landing in Abu Dhabi and there's all these Israeli flags. And I said to Jared, I said, this doesn't happen in foreign policy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I know you're new to this and you've been really successful. But th you just don't have these clear cut wins. Yeah in foreign policy i mean the best you can do is you know something like i kept a lid on it yeah. you know it didn't boil over but the victories were great yeah um 
but they're uh, yeah, that's probably what motivates me. I would say more the thrill of victory for going. That seems win. right. That seems right. Yeah, yeah. Nice Iowa guy too. Yeah, right? it's just like <laughs> putting a happy face on a horrible situation. <laughs> <laughs> Iowans, Iowa nice. That's exactly right. Yeah. Iowa nice. Well, thank you for your time. We yeah, really you appreciate bet. it. Thank you. Uh, we'd love to keep updated with you as we go along. Anytime. All right. Thanks, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah. Thanks.